Good morning, everybody. The title of my talk today is You Are My Mirror. I'd like to point out, first of all, that the talk is in two parts. I was specifically asked to talk about the New English translation of Ibn Arabi's Book of Contemplations, which Jane just held up. However, one cannot ignore the title of this year's symposium, particularly in the light of recent world events and the fact that due to the unity of existence, all things are interconnected. So although responsibility is not a theme that would immediately spring to mind in relation to Ibn Arabi's book of contemplations, there are many ways in which the rending of the veils described in the contemplations refers to humanity's responsibility in coming to know itself and its reality, and therefore its proper relationship with the world. So before I begin to talk specifically about the contemplations, I'd like to elaborate on the theme of the symposium in the light of Ibn Arabi's work in more general terms. When I first heard the title of this year's symposium, Responsibility, I must admit that my heart sank a bit. I tend to shrink away from responsibility. Now, if the title had been Freedom, I think my heart would have leapt for joy. But responsibility implies being accountable. And while that could mean being rewarded, it could also mean punishment. And the fear of punishment tends to loom larger. Then I remembered the Quranic saying, We offered the trust to the heavens and the earth and the mountains, but they refused to burden themselves and shrank back from it in fear. But the human being took it on, and he is unjust and ignorant. Abdul Karim al-Jili, whose teaching follows that of Ibn Arabi, explains the meaning of this Quranic verse in the following way. The Prophet said that God created Adam in the form of the all-compassionate. Or again, after another oral tradition, that God created Adam in his own form. For God is living, knowing, powerful, endowed with will, hearing, sight and speech, in the same way that the human being is. He continues, Know that the names of the essence and the divine qualities belong principally to universal man, that is, the complete human being, as does the universal kingdom, which he holds by his essence. He is then, to God, that which the mirror is to the person who examines himself in it. For God imposed on himself to contemplate his own names and qualities only in the universal human being. So the trust that is offered implies two kinds of responsibility. Firstly, the human being contains all the names and qualities of God, and in this way he provides a mirror for reality, since he encompasses and integrates the whole of existence. He is therefore responsible for receiving whatever appears in the mirror of his heart clearly, with proper balance and without distortion. Secondly, he is God's representative in his kingdom, and is therefore responsible for maintaining and preserving the earth, both the earth of his own body and ultimately the greater earth of this world. He is God's representative in the world because he both represents the world for God and he represents God for the world. Ibn Arabi writes, God composed Adam's outer form of the realities and form of the world and he composed his inner form to match his own form. And it is by virtue of this synthesis that he was made the representative. When Ibn Arabi talks about this position belonging to humanity, he is referring to the complete, universal or perfect man, Al-Insan Al-Kamil, who is totally aware of his reality. Adam represents the prototype of this complete human being who is both in the image of God and contains within himself all potential images of humanity. In this way, every human being is first created in the image of God and has the potential for realizing his primordial perfection. 
So when Ibn Arabi refers to the importance of humankind, he's not just referring to the perfect or complete human being considered as a metaphysical reality, but to every member of the human race. It is only in falling short of the immensity of his potential that the human being is called unjust and ignorant. For as Geely has commented, the human being wronged his own soul by abasing it from so high a rank, and he is ignorant of his own capacity, since he is the place of the divine trust, and he does not know it. In his overview of Ibn Arabi's ideas, Afifi emphasized Ibn Arabi's insistence on the dignity of humankind and the importance of guarding and honoring the human being. And he mentions the following quotations from Ibn Arabi. He who takes care of man takes care of God. The preservation of the human species should have a much greater claim to observance than religious bigotry with its consequent destruction of human souls, even when it is for the sake of God and the maintenance of the law. God has so exalted man that he placed under his control all that is in the heavens and the earth, from the highest to the lowest. Humankind's special position is precisely because humans are capable of being the place of expression for all the divine names, those usually attributed to a transcendent divinity, such as the high, the self-sufficient one, as well as those usually associated with the imminence of creation, such as the trickster, along with all the opposing names, such as the creator and the destroyer, the forgiver and the avenger. However, Ibn Arabi reminds us that not only is Adam created in the form of the name of God, Allah, which includes all the divine names, but that he is created in the form of the all-compassionate. This name is intimately linked to the name of God, since the all-compassionate is the encompassing name which has compassion on all the other names. Here's their silent demand for expression and brings them into existence. We, by our requests, whether spoken or silent, call into being the names we invoke, either by our words or our general state, because the reality responds to how we are. For this reason, we need to be careful of how we are. The whole of existence is infused with compassion, and it is in the form of the compassionate that the human being is made. So we are all invited to know and understand what being made in the form of the all-compassionate really means in order to act appropriately in the world and be aware of the immense dignity that this name entails. Perhaps we should ask ourselves, do we want to dwell in constriction and fear and the dread of punishment? Or do we want to open up to the reality of love and compassion which goes beyond such considerations? Ibn Arabi's Colonel of the Colonels, we are reminded that to be freed from fear, it is necessary to go beyond the limitations of our own particular beliefs and in no way to confine the reality. The God who is far transcendent from the pettiness of the world is the same God who appears in the words, I was ill and you did not visit me. I was hungry and you did not feed me. Beyond the trials and tribulations and suffering of the human journey, there is a place of safety and tranquility for those bound in the service of the love of truth. More profound than the instinctive reaction of shrinking from responsibility in fear, there is a response which springs from universal love and compassion, overriding all apparent obstacles. In such a place of largeness, one can glimpse the meaning of the Quranic words, Indeed, for the friends of God, there is neither fear nor sadness. For those who believe and guard against evil, there are good tidings, Bushra, in this world and the next. As for the weightiness of the responsibility of the trust, humanity is able to bear it due to the origin of our form. Ibn Arabi writes, God created Adam upon his own form. Hence he ascribed to him all his most beautiful names. Through the strength of the form, 
he was able to carry the offered trust. The reality of the form did not allow him to reject the trust in the way that the heavens and the earth refused to carry it. Ibn Arabi reminds us of God's advice. With regard to this matter that I have put into your charge and control, make me your agent in it, and emphasizes the Quranic injunction. God commands you to deliver trusts back to their owners. In acknowledging the real owner of the trust, and recognizing that neither actions nor attributes nor even existence belong to us, but that we are merely the place where these aspects of reality are reflected, the burden is lifted. Similarly, when discussing the grave responsibility felt by that wise person who is aware of carrying all the divine attributes and yet is at a loss to know how to use them, Ibn Arabi says, when he is weighed down in this way, he returns them to their owner and remains happy and burden-free in servanthood, which is his own possession, or rather, his reality, since anything in addition to that may disappear from him. God praises him for delivering the trust back safely. In this way, there is ease and safety in recognizing that we are servants of reality and remembering the purpose of creation expressed in the traditional saying which Ibn Arabi quotes frequently, I was a hidden treasure, and I loved to be known, so I created the world so that I am known. To truly respond to this purpose, which gives real meaning to our existence, we need to allow our hearts to be cleansed and purified, so that they become a clear place of reflection, and to guard against anything that would violate that. As the contemplator is told, in the contemplations of the holy mysteries, you are my mirror, my house, my dwelling place, my hidden treasure, and the seat of my knowledge. Now, to come specifically to introducing Ibn Arabi's Mashahid al-Isra, the contemplations of the holy mysteries, I'd like to begin by explaining why I feel it's important that the book should be made more available, and to give some background as to why and when it was written. In particular, I shall talk about Ibn Arabi's entry into God's vast earth and the world of the imagination. I would then like to illustrate some of the themes spoken of by looking at this short extract from the contemplations which you've all been given. In this book, Ibn Arabi points out the meaning and the value of the human being, who is the secret of existence and the purpose of creation. In one of the visions it contains, he is told, If it were not for you, the mysteries would not exist, nor would the lights shine. In general, if I may quote from the introduction, The contemplations deals with perennial questions, such as the nature of existence, our relationship with the all-encompassing reality, the limits by which we define ourselves and the truth, and the way to happiness. Ibn Arabi makes known the meaning and value of the human being, who is the secret of existence and the purpose of creation. If it were not for you, the mysteries would not exist, nor would the light shine. Between the mystery of what is unseen and the clarity of what is made manifest, between majesty and beauty, compulsion and freedom, awe and intimacy, the fire and the garden, a line is drawn that allows for the arising of a unified perspective which encompasses all apparent duality. Interspersed with visions of incredible beauty and wonder and the promise of eternal happiness is the warning. Pass beyond the forms of images to their meaning. Act appropriately and be vigilant. The full title of the work, Contemplations of the Holy Mysteries and the Rising of the Divine Lights, contains two of the themes I would like to expand on. Mysteries or secrets and rising or elevation. This is precisely the effect that this book has. It is both bewildering due to its mysteries and uplifting 
And as with so much of what Ibn Arabi's writing conveys, it catches you between awe and intimacy. The Contemplations is possibly the earliest of Ibn Arabi's works which have been preserved for us. And if not that, it is actually certainly one of the earliest. It consists of a series of 14 theophanic visions or contemplations where direct conversations with God are interspersed with visionary sequences. To begin with, I wondered whether these visions, besides being highly abstruse, were not too private and personal to be translated and brought out into the contemporary world. I wondered this in particular because of the height and elevation of these conversations and visions revealed to a person of such profound spiritual understanding as Ibn Arabi. Fortunately, this particular dilemma was solved for me by Ibn Arabi himself, as it was a dilemma in which he too had found himself, although not, I hasten to add, because I think he was in any doubt about the directive to write the book, which is an inspired work, but because of the way in which it might be received. We know this because even though the Contemplations stands alone as a text, it is accompanied in several manuscripts by a preface and an epilogue. The preface is written in the form of a letter addressed to the companions of Sheikh Abdulaziz al-Mahtawi, whom Ibn Arabi had just been to visit in Tunis. In this preface, Ibn Arabi states that the book is an inspired work, and he goes on to defend the authenticity of inspiration, mystical contemplation, and conversation with God. He writes, The divine address reached me from the presence of the hidden identity, making this writing appear and take form in the sensory world. By that, I wish to make known that this book has descended from the presence of holiness to reveal itself to the precious essence. I was told, Take it with strength and make it known to everyone you see. Verify it. Examine it thoroughly and be precise in communicating it. And if anyone asks you, how can you claim that it is a revealed work inspired by the divine speech if, after Muhammad, according to Islamic tradition, there can be no more prophetic inspiration, then reply, although Gabriel, the angel of revelation, no longer descends after the ending of the prophetic cycle, that does not mean that divine inspiration has ceased descending on the hearts of the saints because divine reality has not ceased nor will it cease to inspire them with his mysteries making the suns and moons of his knowledge rise in the sky of their hearts the sudden illuminations which God causes to arrive in their hearts are infinite and unlimited like oceans without shores this extract informs us that Ibn Arabi was addressed from an extremely elevated level, the presence of the hidden divine identity, and given this book, which is from the presence of holiness. Yet he was told to take it with strength and make it known to everyone you see. This injunction to Ibn Arabi concerning the Book of Contemplations seemed there to confirm the permission to publish the book, and indeed its universal relevance. The order to verify it examine it thoroughly and be precise in communicating it, on the other hand, seem to confirm that it does not yield its secrets easily. It requires close attention in order for its meaning to unfold and become realized, and great care needed to be taken in its transmission. In fact, Ibn Arabi tells us in his prefatory letter to Mahdawi's students that the book of contemplations comes from the sciences of the mysteries, which are only revealed to the contemplative mystics, since they flow from the source of the secret of the confirmation of truth. This, he says, is the class of mysteries to which the disciple of Abu Yazid al-Bastami alluded when he said, I have carried 300 words taken from Abu Yazid to my grave because I never found anyone worthy of them. Although these secrets are not disclosed directly except to those who are able to receive them, Ibn Arabi points out that it is not forbidden to reveal them and communicate them, as Nifari and other mystics did in their works, and in fact, the transmission of the inspirations is necessary. Ibn Arabi also observes that these mysteries are in any case protected, so that they cannot be discovered in a casual way without proper attention. 
On the contrary, in order to reach them, he says, earnest endeavour and constant application are required, accompanied by great yearning and a submissive heart. Finally, in the text he is told on several occasions to inform the others of what he has seen. For example, in the third contemplation, where the contemplator removes the seventy veils by which he is hidden from the face of truth, he is told, Take all the veils away from me, reveal me, for I have given you permission, and keep me in the treasuries of the hidden, so that no other than me sees me, and invite the people to see me. You will find behind each veil what the beloved found. So consider and recite the Quranic verse, Glory to he who made his servant journey by night from the holy mosque to the farthest mosque, whose precincts we have blessed, in order to show him some of our signs, for he is the one who hears and sees. And when you come to the words, he is the one who hears and sees, understand well my intention, and tell the servants what you have seen, so that you awaken their longing for me, and fill them with desire for me, and you will be a mercy for them. This would then provide definite confirmation that these contemplations are meant to be communicated. Ibn Arabi's close student and companion, Ibn Saudakin, who copied down his master's comments on the work, remarks that what is found behind each veil is not God, but only a sign which indicates one of his places of manifestation. Otherwise, he says, if you claim that something veils God, you would limit him. I should point out here that Ibn Arabi considered the book of the contemplations of the Holy Mysteries and his later visionary account, Al-Kitab al-Isra, or the book of the night journey, to be intimately linked. Ibn Arabi also explains elsewhere that the purpose of the night journey, or spiritual ascension, is not to reach God, for he is never apart from us. It is simply to show us some of his wonders and indications. Ibn Arabi writes, God says, I only made him journey by night in order that he see the signs, not to bring him to me, because no place can hold me, and the relation of all places to me is the same. For I am such that only the heart of my servant, the person of true faith, encompasses me. So how could he be made to journey to me while I am with him wherever he is? Besides showing signs which are beheld and witnessed, the contemplations contains direct dialogue with God, not only transmitting what God says to the contemplator, but what he says to God. Ibn Arabi found himself obliged to comment on his experience in what he calls the station of the word. He explains in the preface, the reception of the divine speech refers to the meanings which appear in the soul, not to voices or letters. He says, The Maker, glory to him, is far above the existence of voices and letters in his essence. Rather, he, glory to him, is speaking unconditionally through the ancient speech, which is an attribute of meaning that he has attributed to himself. One does not say that it is him, nor that it is other than him. His speech, glory to him, is far above voice or letter, priority or posteriority. Every word which appears in existence arrives newly, and it is his creation and invention. It remains clear then that this speech, in reality, is the speech of the self, and the words, writing, symbols and illusions are its indications and are not the speech itself. He continues, Why do you think this speech without voice or letter is implausible when you talk to yourself about what has happened without voice or letter all the time and it is speech as it really is and the tongue is its interpreter? The Arab poet says, Speech is in the heart. The tongue is only indicates what is there.
visions and conversations with God, which are related in the contemplations, were not something new to Ibn Arabi. By the time he came to write this book, he had already had countless mystical experiences, visions and revelations, in particular during spiritual retreats. He would sometimes receive Quranic verses, which would descend in a shower of stars, which was one of the ways in which the Quran was received by Muhammad himself. He would then have secret conversations with God. He wrote later, The descent of the Quran into the heart of the servant is the descent of God into him. God then speaks to him from his inmost self and in his inmost self. I would like to further situate the writings of the contemplations within the life of Ibn Arabi, as it took place after some extremely influential events. In 1193, when Ibn Arabi was about 28 years old, he left the Iberian Peninsula for the first time and sailed across to North Africa in order to visit Sheikh Abdulaziz al-Mahdawi in Tunis, where, incidentally, there's another conference on Ibn Arabi is going to be held next month. Mahdawi, to whom the Book of the Contemplations is dedicated, was a disciple of the great Sheikh Abu Madian, for whom Ibn Arabi had enormous respect and who seems to have influenced him deeply, even though it is unlikely that they ever met in this world. Ibn Arabi spent almost a year in Tunis in the company of Mahdawi and other great masters, many of whom were also disciples of Abu Madian. Whilst in Tunis that year, Ibn Arabi entered the abode of symbols, which consists of various abodes, including the abode of God's vast earth, or the earth of reality. His entry into it, as related in that famous story from the Sufis of Andalusia, was marked by his uttering a fearful cry during the ritual prayer, which caused all who heard it to lose consciousness, although even the women who consequently fell from high terraces to the courtyard suffered no harm. The earth of reality is an intelligible spiritual realm beyond the senses in which the real adoration of God takes place. It is the realm of absolute bondage to God. That is, bondage or servitude in the sense that, as Bulent Ralph, the founder of the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society, observed, love is bondage willingly accepted by the free. From that time onwards, Ibn Arabi tells us that he worshipped God in this other dimension as a complete servant to the real. It was also in Tunis at this time that he came to know that he was the heir of the knowledge of Muhammad. And as the Muhammadian heir, he, like Muhammad, was required to address all people, not just a particular group. Soon after his return from Tunis in 1194, Ibn Arabi composed the contemplations. I particularly wanted to point out that the writing of the contemplations took place following Ibn Arabi's entry into the earth of reality, precisely because it is both the world where total worship and service to God takes place, and it is also the world of imagination. With reference to the first aspect, Ibn Arabi writes in the Futahat al-Makiyah, Servitude is complete and pure submission, in conformity with the very essence of the servant's nature. It is only realized by those who inhabit God's vast earth, which contains both what is happening newly and what was always so. This is the earth of God. Whoever dwells there has realized true servitude and adoration with regard to God, and God joins that person to himself because he has said, You, my servants who believe, my earth is vast, so worship me, alluding in these words to the earth of which I am speaking. Ibn Arabi continues, I myself have been worshipping God in this place ever since the year 590, that's 1193, and it is now 1237. This earth is imperishable and immutable. That is why God has made it the abode of his servants and his place of worship. It is an earth of spiritual meanings, being intelligible and not of the senses. In this world of the imagination, the intermediate realm between the visible and invisible worlds, between body and spirit, symbols become alive. 
It is the realm where bodies become spiritualized and spirits become embodied. It is the meeting place of the two seas, the sea of meanings and the sea of sensory things. And it is the place where the meaning of the saying of the Prophet Muhammad, worship God as if you see him, becomes alive. Ibn Arabi informs us that the world has three levels. The world of the visible or witnessed, which is the world of sensation and manifestation associated with daytime. The world of the invisible or absent, which is the world of reason associated with night. And the world of imagination, which both joins and separates the two. And this is called the Barzakh or Isthmus. He writes of this interworld, it is the descent of meanings within sensory forms. The meanings are not of the invisible world because they have put on sensory forms, nor are they of the witnessed world because they are disengaged meanings and their manifestation within these forms is an accidental affair that has happened to the perceiver, not to the meanings themselves. And he refers by way of example to the occasion when the Prophet Muhammad was given milk in a dream and he interpreted the milk to mean knowledge. In reality, the meaning was knowledge, but it was perceived in the dream as milk. Ibn Arabi tells us that through the imagination, meanings are robed in density after they had been subtle, so that the meanings gain a correspondence with the world of sensation. They become manifest as dense forms in sensation after they had been spiritual, subtle, absent forms. This is one of the traces of the intermediate world, the Barzakh. It turns the intelligible into the sensory and the sensory into the intelligible. Most people are only aware of this world when they are asleep and dreaming. But Ibn Arabi has told us that once he entered this realm, he never again left it. This does not mean that he inhabited a world of sleep. On the contrary, he had woken up into the earth of reality. Ibn Arabi quotes the saying of the Prophet, people are asleep and when they die, they awaken. Ibn Arabi enjoins us to wake up whilst we are in this world and see the reality of what is revealed to us now before we die the death of the body. We are exhausted to take notice and go beyond the dream images, reaching up to their real meaning, just as the Prophet when he was given a bowl of milk in his dream, interpreted it as knowledge. Ibn Arabi says a great deal about this extraordinary earth of reality and affirms that when the mystic contemplative contemplates that universe, it is himself, his own soul, that he contemplates in it. The following extract from the Futahat has particular reference to the contemplations. Ibn Arabi writes... Let us return to the description of that earth with its immensity and the multitude of universes which have been constituted from it and in it. For the mystics, this earth is where theophanies and theophanic visions or contemplations take place. One of them tells us of a case which I myself know from a first personal vision. In that earth, he tells us, I happened one day to penetrate a gathering which was known as the Assembly of Mercy. I never saw an assembly more wonderful than that one. While I was there, there came upon me suddenly a theovanic vision or contemplation. Far from tearing me away from myself, it made me more firmly in my own company. This is one of the peculiar characteristics of that earth. Indeed, when such contemplations come to mystics in our material world, while they are present to their fleshly body, they carry the ecstatic away from himself, and he is annihilated before his vision. So it was in the case of the prophets, the great initiates, and all those who have experienced such ecstasies. Likewise, the world of the celestial spheres, the heaven of the fixed stars ablaze with constellations, the world of the throne encircling the whole cosmos are, all of them, reft from the ecstatics when these contemplations come upon them. It is all destroyed 
as by a flash of lightning. On the other hand, when the visionary mystic has penetrated into this earth of which I am speaking, and when a contemplation comes to him there, his contemplative perception is not annihilated by it. It does not tear him from his act of existing. It makes possible the coexistence in him of vision and discourse. It is precisely this coexistence of vision and discourse or contemplation and conversation which is so striking in these contemplations of Ibn Arabis. The contemplations consist of 14 visions, each of which is linked to the rising of a star. It begins with the contemplation of existence as the star of direct vision rises. When the contemplative is asked, Who are you? Then it continues in an ascending journey to the contemplation of the light of argument as a star of justice rises when the traveller arrives at the day of judgment. In this ascending journey, the rising of each star heralds a new revelation appearing in the heart of the contemplator. It should be emphasized that the contemplations are visions of the real in a holy place. They are not passive contemplations, but active in the sense of seeing with one's own eyes and then bearing witness. This active response of witnessing is reflected in the reply to the question, Am I not your Lord? which is alluded to in the first contemplation, and in the need to bear witness to one's deeds on the day of judgment or on the day when truth is revealed, which is exemplified in the final contemplation. As Ibn Arabi points out in the Fusus al-Hikam, every person is conscious of their own state of soul. And he quotes the Quran, the human being has an intuitive perception of himself, whatever excuse he may give. So the witnessing described in the contemplations is not just seeing, but actively acknowledging. All that is seen in these holy visions takes place within the mystic contemplative himself. As William Blake more recently affirmed, in your own bosom you bear your heaven and earth and all you behold. Though it appears without, it is within, in your imagination, of which this world of mortality is but a shadow. In speaking of the world of imagination in his book, the Fusus al-Hikam, in the chapter of Joseph, Ibn Arabi says of this divine shadow, which we call the universe, you imagine that the world is something separate and self-sufficient outside the reality, while in truth it is not so. Have you not observed that the shadow is connected to the one who casts it? And would it not be absurd for it to become detached, since nothing can be disconnected from itself? Therefore, know your own essence, who you are, what is your identity, and what your relationship with the reality. Consider well in what way you are real, and in what way the world. Of course, the shadow is nothing but an image of its reality. But do we want to stay with the limited form of that image, or pass beyond it to the single reality itself? Ibn Arabi points out in the epilogue to the contemplations, the one who stays with the image is lost, and the one who rises from the image to the reality is rightly guided. The warning to pass beyond the forms of images to their true meaning does not mean that the outward image is disregarded, but that there is a true perception of its reality. In other words, the image is not denied, since it is the truth, or God himself, who is revealed in every image. But truth cannot be limited to any particular form, and each form embodies a particular knowledge and conveys a particular meaning. In the text of the contemplations itself, the contemplative is ordered, rise beyond and you will discover. 
And significantly, in the closing remarks of the final contemplation, he is told, Be warned and pass beyond. That is, take heed and cross over to the hidden significance of all that has been revealed in the contemplations. Similarly, it is for us to penetrate to the true meaning of the book and not to stay with the images. For even though the contemplations is a prose work, Ibn Arabi has constant recourse to poetic images to communicate ideas. These images allow the reader to synthesize opposing ideas and require the use of the imagination, whereas prose explanations require the use of reason. What is known through reason is the result of analysis and differentiation and can lead to an understanding of God's incomparability or his transcendence from the world of creation. On the other hand, what is seen with the imagination is a result of synthesis and unification and can lead to an awareness of God's similarity or his imminence in the world of creation. Ibn Arabi writes, The sensory and imaginative faculties demand by their essences to see him who brought them into existence, while rational faculties demand by their proofs to know him who brought them into existence. Therefore, Ibn Arabi emphasizes the need to see things with two eyes and to keep a balance between the perception of God's incomparability and his similarity, his transcendence and imminence. Both these aspects are simultaneously valid and Ibn Arabi warns us to beware of leaning excessively towards one view whilst ignoring the other. The extract that you all have is taken from the fourth contemplation, which is the contemplation of the light of intuition as the star of transcendence rises. It should be borne in mind that this concerns a particular theophanic vision forming just one part of an ascending spiritual journey. It illustrates the intermediate area which unites the visible and the invisible worlds, the line between the veils of light and darkness, the fine thread which leads to transformation in the newness of life. It begins, In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. The real made me contemplate the light of intuition as the star of transcendence rose. And he <coughs> said to me, I hide myself in evidence and intuition from the people of veils. Then he said to me, Poetry is confined and it is a place of symbol and enigma. If they knew that the symbol and enigma of things is in the intensity of clarity, they would follow that. The luminous verses of the Quran have been revealed as indications of meanings which otherwise would never be understood. And later it continues, When you see the cattle, horses and donkeys immersed in water up to their necks, then ride the mules, and leaning on the walls, try to reach the bank. If an obstacle should arise, cutting you off from the bank, cover your eyes with your hands, and let your hair fall over your forehead, and enter the stream without fear, for the water will not reach your saddlebow, and you will be safe. Whoever is riding a horse or a donkey will perish in the river, but not he who is riding a mule. If you stay in intuition, you will be the middle degree. Whoever is beneath you will look towards you, and whoever is above you will turn towards you, so that there is no one above you. In intuition, you will find the instant. If you are the middle degree, then travel in spring. Light is a veil, and darkness is a veil. In the line between them both, you will be aware of what is most beneficial. So follow this line closely. Perhaps I should point out here that the text at one level may be read alone as an extraordinary piece of poetic prose. Because even if one doesn't understand what Ibn Arab is alluding to, we are attracted to his words because there is something in us which responds to the truth that he reveals. For me, the injunction to travel in spring provides refreshingly direct and forceful advice. 
and also the image of covering your eyes with your hands, letting your hair fall over your forehead and entering the stream. Somehow this reverberates strongly even without knowing what it alludes to. As with Ibn Arabi's book of love poetry, the Tajman al-Ashwaq, or the Interpreter of Desires, the images stand by themselves and contain many resonances on different levels. However, the commentary is an extremely helpful addition in unlocking some of the meanings. Most of the notes accompanying the compilations consist of what Ibn Saudikin wrote down following the oral explanations of his master, whilst other notes are comments made by the famous female shaker from Baghdad, Sitar Ajam, who was told in a vision by Ibn Arabi himself to write her commentary on the contemplations. It should therefore be borne in mind that the notes give helpful indications for understanding particular meanings, even if they only provide a rational explanation to accompany images whose real meaning is only perceived through unveiling. Again, Ibn Arabi's constant play on words in alluding to the many meanings contained within the same root letters of the Arabic adds to the limitations of translation. First, it should be explained that in the passage just quoted, the word for intuition or awareness, shu'ur, comes from the same root as the word for poetry and also hair. Considering Ibn Arabi's fondness for poetry, shown not just in his dedicated works of poems, but also in his frequent use of poetry and poetic images within his prose works, it might seem strange that he writes, poetry is confined and it is the place of symbol and enigma. If they knew that the symbol and enigma of things is in the intensity of clarity, they would follow that. Yet Ibn Arabi, who is steeped in the Quran, is writing in the context of the remarks about poets and poetry contained in the Quran, which may appear to be derogatory. However, when the Quran says that God did not teach Muhammad poetry and that it is not appropriate for him, Ibn Arabi understands this to mean that Muhammad did not take the Quran on the basis of intuition, the word coming from the same root as poetry, but he took it through certain knowledge. That is, Muhammad did not take it through inference, for he knows it through vision and unveiling and has no doubt about it. Ibn Arabi explains the Futuhat al-Makiyah. There is intuition when the door is closed and knowledge when the door is opened. Intuition is gained from behind the door while the door is locked. This door is nothing but you, for you are under the ruling property of your meaning and your habitation, and that is the locking of the door. You are aware that behind this body and this manifest form, there is another meaning that you do not know, even though you have an intuition about it. Covering the eyes with the hands and allowing the hair to fall over the forehead signifies, therefore, that guidance comes in this instance not from the outward sight, but from the interior perception or intuition. The kind of interior perception being referred to here is not insight, the sira, which Ibn Arabi tells us is based on clear knowledge obtained through vision and unveiling, but this is an intuition which is perceived behind a closed door. So the covering of the eyes with the hands and letting the hair fall over the forehead is like allowing oneself to be guided by an awareness of what is behind the door, even if one does not have a clear vision of it. Ibn Saudakin's commentary says that this line means stop your imagination and speculative faculties. He also points out that the mule, which the contemplative is urged to ride, is a cross between the horse and the donkey and is therefore a barzak or intermediary between two opposites. It is neither a horse nor a donkey, but it is not not a horse, and it is not not a donkey. Ibn Arabi writes in the Futahat, the barzak is between between, a station between this and that, not one of them, but the totality of the two. Ibn Saudakim further tells us that this symbol of the mule implies 
that the contemplative is not restricted to a single limited form, but adopts a form which integrates two or more aspects, since if he orientated himself exclusively towards one of them, he would lose the perspective of the other. It should also be pointed out here, the Arabic root for the word horse, khayl, is the same as that for imagination, khayal. Speculation, on the other hand, is indirectly associated with the Quranic image of a donkey carrying books and a theoretical kind of knowledge. Ibn Arabi writes extensively elsewhere about the ability of the imagination to perceive similarities and to see God as imminent in creation, while the rational faculties tend to assert the incomparability of God and his transcendence from creation. Ibn, Ibn Saudakin also comments on the instruction to let your hair fall over your forehead by saying that this means apply your synthetic intuitive knowledge to the center of your consciousness to see what it brings you. If you do this, you will leave the station of the imagination, you will arrive in the river from the same route as daylight, and you will be saved. Whilst those who ride horses or donkeys having restricted reality to a particular order, will perish, since God, glory to him, is not limited. The contemplative is advised, therefore, to journey in the place where the realities come together, the degree which, even Keen tells us, is between intelligible meanings and physical things. If you are in the middle degree, the contemplative is told, then travel in spring. And this is wonderful news to travel in spring, because it carries with it a sense of constant newness and the instant which is found in intuition. Then the contemplative is told, light is a veil and darkness is a veil. In the line between them both, you will be aware of what is most beneficial, so follow this line closely. The delight of these images in the text itself is that they are not fixed into a simple one-to-one -one correspondence. The commentary gives a lead on their initial meaning, but even the, in the commentary the meaning shifts, for example from what is between the imaginative and speculative faculties to what is between the intelligible meanings and physical things, so that these images retain all the residences of the intermediate world between two states, explained here as between light and darkness, prose and poetry, sleep and waking, the senses and the intellect not confined to any formula or shackled by the fetters of reason. What is more, this is only an extract from the fourth of 14 contemplations. The contemplator does not stay in any one of them, but moves on to be shown further signs revealed by other lights. I hope this extract gives some idea of the elusiveness and rich symbolism of the visions. The meanings behind the imagery is not immediately obvious, and yet it's sufficiently striking to invite us to discover more. Thank you.